So in this series of teachings, our goal is to take seriously the beliefs and the feelings and the ideas and the intuitions our society has about sex and gender. And also we're here to learn the Christian vision of sex and gender and what it looks like to be a part of that better story that God is telling, a story of human flourishing at this particular point in time. And so if you have a Bible, find the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Some of you might have memorized this growing up in vacation Bible school or Sunday school. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now this is a really helpful passage of scripture for what we saw last week. Remember the work of Jonathan Haidt, the social psychologist, who, who has shown that typically we don't logically reason our way to our moral views. And so we have a hard time because of that explaining why we see something as morally right or morally wrong. We just know in our guts what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. And so our views about sex and gender are typically based on moral intuitions, not reason. And these moral intuitions reside at a deeper level than our heads. Deeper than our minds, our intellect, they reside in our hearts, in our guts, in our instincts. And it's this view of humans that's operating in Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart. More important than guarding your mind. Above everything else, set a guard over your heart. For from it flow the springs of life. Now, this, this is the, the view of a human. This is the anthropology that Jonathan Haidt is developing in categories of moral psychology. This idea that our moral intuitions fund our views about serious things. Now, how do we get our moral intuitions? Where do they come from? If they don't come from reason, where do they come from? They come from stories. Humans are fundamentally storied creatures. Our moral intuitions are shaped by our most beloved stories. Because these stories do more than entertain us. They capture our imaginations, our hearts. They get embedded in our psyche. And there are three fundamental stories that our society tells that forms our sense of what's right and what's wrong when it comes to sex and gender. Last week, we looked at the stories our society tells so well about identity. That's the first one. In our age of authenticity, one of the most important things in life is to find your deepest dreams and desires and bring those out to the world. And our sexual desires are a part of that. Our sexual desires are both a marker of our true self and a primary way of expressing our true self in public. So you've got to be true to yourself no matter what others say. And if someone does put pressure on you to change yourself, they are oppressing you, they are threatening your health as a human, your flourishing, your core 
personal identity. That's what we saw last week. Now, tonight we're going to focus on the second set of stories our society tells that fund our views of gender and sexuality. And this is the whole set of stories regarding freedom. Last week, identity. This week, freedom. Next week, love. Okay, freedom, sex and freedom today. Now, one of the ways that our society tells its deepest stories is through rituals that surround sports. For example, sorry to the band people. For example, at the beginning of most major sporting events in America, someone is going to sing what? The national anthem, also called... Star-Spangled Banner. And if you YouTube, you'll find all the top ten. Top best, top ten worst. Typically, folks love Whitney Houston's version at the 1991 Super Bowl, and they typically hate Roseanne Barr's version at the 1990 San Diego Padres baseball game. But whoever is singing, almost always the climactic moment of the song is when the singer belts out which phrase? Or the land of the... And um, typically it's this elongated high note And that's when the crowd starts cheering And if it's at like the Super Bowl, right the, the fighter jets fly over at that exact moment And even though the song goes on I mean it's got more It talks about the brave and all That's really in the narrative arc of the, arc of the song Just an afterthought Because both the melody line and our society Highlight freedom as the main theme. That's our national anthem. Many people who study American society say that freedom is our most important value. That's why we've developed rituals about it around our most kind of common gathering events. The right to be free has become our consummate cultural cliche. It is a banner under which we live our entire lives. And what does freedom mean for America at this particular point in our secular age? It means removing limitations or constraints. The fewer the boundaries we have on our choices and actions, the freer we are to be ourselves. Think about advertising. Outback Steakhouse. It's Jingo line. No rules, just right. PlayStation, be whatever you want to be. Burger King, have it your way. Nike, just do it. And, and it's all over our advertising. This idea of freedom is the removal of limitation, the removal of boundaries and rules. Now, it's also all over our movies. For example, Frozen, it won two Academy Awards, one for Best Animated Feature and the other for Best Original Song, which was, anybody know? Let it go. And in this song, Elsa sings for the contemporary culture by saying she can be free only if there are no boundaries holding her back. She sings about how she's determined no longer to be the good girl that her family and society want her to be. Instead, she's going to let go and express her true self. And how does she express her true self? By breaking out of the limits her family and society have forced upon her. And at one point, she sings, The fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. 
See, that's how we define freedom. And so right at the heart of modern culture is the ideal of personal freedom. That we can live well and truly be ourselves only if we are free to make choices for ourselves. We will have the greatest level of happiness and fulfillment when we have the freedom to choose. When no one is constraining our choices. Okay, so how does this play into our moral intuitions about sex and gender? Well, to understand that, we need to step aside from sociology for a moment and turn our attention to technology. Up until the year 1960, one of the primary boundaries, not the only one, but one of the primary boundaries set up around sex was fear. Fear of pregnancy, fear of social stigma and punishment, and fear of disease. But something happened in 1960, and it was in the field of technology. Scientists created something that came onto the market in the summer of 1960, and it has changed the world. Some people, speaking with a little bit of hyperbole, but not much, have even gone so far as to say that this particular piece of technology created the most profound change that has ever occurred in the history of the human race. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I think I heard it out there in some of you. Birth control, the pill, that's right. Artificial hormonal contraception. On June 23rd, 1960, the FDA approved the pill for contraceptive use. And this was soon followed by numerous other mostly reliable technologies of birth control that have become widely available and used by married people and unmarried people alike. Now, it is almost impossible for most of us in this room to imagine life before this. But it was fundamentally different. Remember, there are many people saying this is the most significant change the world's ever gone through. Something happened in 1960 that has changed the world. Beyond all reckoning. Now, humans have attempted throughout history to control their fertility through various means. But the last five decades have witnessed major changes in the variety, the reliability, the ease and accessibility of birth control. And the cultural effect of this, among others, has been to disconnect sex from procreation in our minds. Before 1960, having sex meant knowingly taking the risk of becoming a mother or father. After 1960, that connection faded, at least in the cultural imagination. And sex increasingly came to be seen as a normal element of any close or perhaps even casual relationship having nothing to do with a baby. And so sex now... In the imagination of our society is recreation. For Christians and non-Christians alike, it is an activity we associate fundamentally with pleasure, not procreation. Now remember, prior to the 1960s, one of the primary boundaries to sex outside of marriage was fear. Fear of pregnancy, fear of social stigma and punishment, fear of disease. But with the pill and its cousins... 
substantially undermining those first two fears, right? Now you don't have to fear pregnancy or social stigma because people won't even necessarily know that you had sex because there's there's going to be no visible form of this. And then modern medicine has largely erased the third fear, the fear of disease. I mean, we sometimes forget, but only a decade ago, the presence of HIV and AIDS was a stunning exception to the idea that you could have any kind of sex at all without serious consequence. But one of the amazing technological advances of medicine has made even AIDS and HIV a manageable disease in the affluent West, even though it's continuing to kill millions of less fortunate patients elsewhere. And so, for the first time in history, society thinks of sex as something you can do without any serious life-altering consequences. And it's driven by sociology, the deep stories that affect our moral intuitions, and technology, contraception. So the hookup culture on our college campuses would never have existed. It, It could not exist prior to 1960, without these deep stories and this technology. And so at this moment in our secular age, our view is that we should freely express with our bodies what we feel in our hearts, how we feel about someone should determine how far we go sexually with them. And that is brand new. And is only because of this technology and this sociology And so when it comes to sex, each person should do what seems best to him or her. Here's the key. Mutual consent rather than covenant is the moral foundation for sex. Consent, not covenant. That's the shift that's that's happened. Now, mutual consent rather than a marriage covenant between a man and a woman is the moral foundation for sex, sexual relations. Even the personal health consequences of engaging a wide variety of sexual partners are regarded as an acceptable result of freedom of choice. And so the result of individual relational choice on children, on parents, on spouses, and third parties are considered of secondary importance to the happiness and the autonomy of the individual involved. Now I need to back up for a moment because I'm being, you might hear me being very negative about the sexual revolution, but it's not all bad. There is much good that has come from the sexual revolution. For example, human societies and cultures historically have known that sex is both powerful and potentially destructive. So every society and culture in history has devised ways because of this because of the power and the potential devastation, every society and culture has devised ways to regulate sex. And typically, the social regulation of sex throughout human history has involved the exercise of patriarchy, repression, domination, coercion, and exploitation. In other words, the social control of sexuality has not always or even often benefited people. 
And so we've got to recognize that the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the 70s was in part an attempt to remedy those problems. To lift former restrictions on sexual expression and to leave more up to individual choice and happiness. This is part of the larger movement focused on individual freedom in Western society that has done incalculable good. It has led to a far more just and fair society for minorities and women. The sociology and the technology driving the sexual revolution have played a significant role in reducing the wage disparity between the genders. It's played a significant role in lifting the educational levels of women. And we need to see that the sexual revolution has confronted a traditional approach to marriage and sex that too often trapped people in abusive or toxic relationships. The church must recognize that the good old days failed miserably at times for far too many people in the whole area of relationships. There was so much relational dysfunction and so little attention paid to relational health and growth that the good old days left millions disillusioned and yearning for something more. And so for those whom traditional society trapped in toxic relationships, our secular age provides a welcome release. And so once again, just as I did last week, I'm saying that it is vitally important to realize there are some very good reasons that we are where we are. The good old days had their chance. And we live in the generation that rejected those days and it is not only because of sexual hedonism. The sexual revolution represents the hopes and dreams of millions if not billions of people who see in it their best hope for a better life. A way of life superior to the one that preceded it. The question before us is whether we can demonstrate and articulate an alternative that more fully satisfies the longings of the human heart. That's the challenge that Christians are facing. Can we articulate and demonstrate an alternative that more fully satisfies the longings of the human heart? Now to answer that, let's begin by looking at the data. Here it's how it's going 50 years into the sexual revolution. Well, the standard view of the sexual revolution is that it's been near, a nearly unmitigated boon for all of humanity. Between the pill and its permanent backup plan, abortion, women have been liberated from the slavery of their fertility, thus freeing them for personal and professional opportunities they could not have enjoyed otherwise. And many would argue that men have been liberated from the former chains chiefly from the bondage of having to take responsibility for the women they had sex with and all the children that came out of that. And many would argue that the sexual revolution with its efficient contraception has enriched the lives of children by making it easier to limit family size and therefore little Johnny and little Susie don't have to divide up the family wealth and attention with 8 or 10 or 16 other claimants on the largesse of mom and dad. 
But behind the facade, things are not quite what they seem. So many of the very things the sexual revolution promised are not showing up. Over the last five decades, out of view of many people telling the tale, a compelling record has been building of the real cost that have been mounting up since the sexual revolution was kicked off. It is a record that is now rich in detail from a variety of sources, ranging from the social sciences, especially psychology and psychology, to economics, to more microscopic accounts of the revolution's real and permanent consequences in lots of individual lives. So let's look at some of the ways the sexual revolution is not living up to its promises. And let's start with kind of a humorous one because it's going to get very painful. One of the promises is that once we are set free from the shackles of shame imposed by religion, the revolution promised that we would enjoy the freedom of more sex. But ironically, we're not having as much sex as our parents and grandparents had. This is a fact. It's something to kind of laugh about in the age of sex in the city and Cosmo and all these. David Spiegelhalter is a British statistician and the Winton Professor of the Public Understanding of Risk in the Statistical Laboratory at Cambridge, Cambridge University of Cambridge. He's actually Sir David John Spiegelhalter because he's received the Order of the British Empire. And on top of that, he's also a fellow of the Royal Society. This is quite impressive. I mean, this is the British award granted to people who make the most significant contributions to science. Think of past recipients, Isaac Newton, Charles Darwin, Winston Churchill, Alan Turing, Stephen Hawking. So he's in that class. Spiegelhalter has drawn together convincing data that shows we are not living in a sexual paradise of free love. In fact, the frequency of sex has declined since the start of the sexual revolution. And the trend is so precipitous that Spiegelhalter observes, I think it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but he says, at this rate of decline, a simple but extremely naive extrapolation, I'm quoting him, extrapolation would predict that by 2040, the year 2040, the average person will have no sex at all. I rather suspect something will change and this will not be the case, but it still leaves a crucial question. Why aren't we having more sex? This is the data. It is not what you're going to hear by watching TV or reading magazines, but this is what, and he's not alone in telling the story. Okay, so, so, so he's, he's told us this kind of piece of irony, but I wish that it could all be that funny because behind the rhetoric of choice and freedom and behind the cultural regime of easy sex, there is hard data of real frustration and real hurt and regret and confusion and grief and anger and shame. For example, the grief and confusion that follows for so many people, abortion. And then there's the significant problem of sexually transmitted diseases. All of this is there in plain sight. But there is also much that is not in plain sight. Much that is not being talked about in public. For example, the devastation following romantic breakups. I'm not talking about the standard middle school, high school splits that sweep through the local rumor mill and create a lot of drama and somebody cries for a day or two. Normally the boy. <laughs> Let's just be friends. 
Christian Smith, the not I've heard this. <laughs> Christian Smith is the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of Sociology at the University of Notre Dame, and he writes about this in his book, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2011. This is serious sociology. The title of the book is Lost in Transition, The Dark Side of Emerging Adulthood. Smith writes about couples who are sexually involved and are living together or semi-living together. And when they break up, he says that his, his interviews keep showing this pattern of real emotional and physical trauma. Some dumped partners spend days sleeping and crying or lying in bed immobilized with depression and the anguish of being cheated on and otherwise betrayed. In his interview, people spoke of profound struggles with self-doubt, self-criticism, and hopelessness lasting for months of uncertainty about being able to trust another man or woman who they may love in the future. At one point, Smith wrote, their accounts seemed analogous to the experience of going through a difficult divorce. Through whatever even though they have never even been married, for many the pain and fear linger even as they try to pick up the pieces and move on with their lives. This is a real thing that's going on in our society. And then there's a whole library's worth of data coming out about the increasing epidemic of loneliness and insecurity. I could go into all of that data, but I, I want to focus our attention on the way the sexual revolution is harming young people. In 2004 and 2005, a group of researchers from Harvard University's Stem Cell Institute and the Pacific Institute for Research and Evaluation and the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of North Carolina. Look, this is not some church-funded like witch hunt. The, the series of scientists published a series of articles in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine where they established two facts. Number one, when teenagers and college students have sex, it significantly raises the risk for depression and suicide. And number two, despite the common presumption Young people do not self-medicate with drugs and sex. No data indicates that. All of the data indicates drugs and sex lead to depression and suicide. They are the leading indicator. When a teenager or college student has sex, their risk of depression and suicide significantly increases. In other words, there are real demonstrable negative consequences to the sexual revolution and its weight has fallen on the smallest and weakest shoulders in our society. At the same time, it has given strength to the strongest and most predatory in our society. I'll come back to that, but first... Perhaps the deepest irony of the sexual revolution, with all of its gains for women, is that overall the sexual revolution is not a gift to women. It is a burden 
And this is one of the most fascinating aspects of the revolution. It's presumed beneficiaries. Women turn out to have problems and issues that their supposedly benighted pre-revolutionary forebearers did not have. First of all, there is what science is calling the paradox of happiness among women. In 2009, two Wharton School economists, Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolfers, published their groundbreaking report, The Paradox of Declining Female Happiness. Using 35 years of data from the General Social Survey, they observed that given the many social and economic transformations of modernity that benefit women, they talk about a closing gender wage gap, educational attainment that now tops out of men, the sexual freedom conveyed by artificial contraception, and so on. They argue one would reasonably expect to see those who are the beneficiaries of these trends registering increased happiness. Instead, surprise, surprise, they said, it's the reverse. Over the past 35 years, women's happiness has fallen both absolutely and relative to men's in a pervasive way, such that women no longer report being happier than men, and in many cases now report happiness that is below that of men. And their data shows this is the case throughout the industrialized world. That is sad. And it is an underreported fact. But I wish that was all that was going on with women. Because as sad as that is, there is something far more tragic happening. Remember how I said that the weight of the negative consequences from the sexual revolution has fallen on the smallest and weakest of shoulders, and at the same time it's given extra strength to those already strongest and most predatory? This is the dark underside of the sexual revolution. In a stunning sociological survey of the pain of romantic love in our secular age, Eva Illouz, the renowned sociologist from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, concludes her study. The title of it is Why Love Hurts. She concludes her study by observing that women are in the odd historical position of having never before had such sovereign control of their body and emotions, and yet at the same time being so entirely emotionally dominated by men in unprecedented ways. The data is overwhelming. Contraception has released males to a historically unprecedented degree from responsibility for sexual aggression. Women are not the beneficiaries of the sexual revolution. Men are. And it is in a very real and frightening way that the men who are most benefiting are the exonerated predatory men. They are being exonerated and strengthened as never before. This could go on and on until we all leave here either bleary-eyed from the monotony or bleary-eyed from the tears. So I'll wrap up with a tour of the darkest side of the sexual freedom train. Our college campuses. This is ground zero for the fallout from our grand social experiment in easy sex. 
Studies suggest that between 20 and 25% of all college women in the United States experience attempted or completed rape during their college career. And 42% of college women have experienced some type of coerced or forced kiss or fondling. Furthermore, two-thirds of all female rape victims between the ages of 18 and 29 had a prior relationship with their rapist. This doesn't mean the creepy old uncle. Christian Smith, the sociologist from Notre Dame in his book, Lost in Transition, he reports there are two important factors behind the story of rape by someone the victim knows. Number one, the sexual climate on college campuses leaves too many guys feeling entitled to act aggressively in pursuing sexual encounters especially when alcohol or drugs are involved and with people with emotional and psychological problems, this can lead to life-altering and life-scarring misconduct. Seemingly nice guys can be turned into sexual predators. Second, women, again, especially when alcohol is involved or when they are too naive or trusting, can end up overpowered on a dorm couch in the wee hours of the morning by someone they know and wake up finding themselves half undressed on someone else's bathroom floor. That's a quote from Christian Smith's interviews. Now, obviously, rape and sexual abuse is not new. But they are much more prevalent now. More so than in the dark ages. And the reason is because certain protections against it have been washed away. I am not claiming that we need to return to some earlier pristine era, to some mythical time when people were generally more moral, but I am suggesting that the chaotic situation of our present moment must be acknowledged. Now, what protections have been lost? They're simple things, really, and some of them were better than others. Things like rules against closed doors, single-gender dorms, social expectations about how long dating couples would wait for sex. We've lost a, whole, a lot of protections that were mostly about fear and shame. The protection that came from not having access to reliable birth control. The protection that came with fear of being ostracized for having sex. Now, I'm not advocating shame as a good means of changing sexual behavior. What I'm saying is that our sexual age, with our secular age, with its belief that sexual encounters are supposed to be about pleasure only. They're supposed to come with no strings attached. This has produced a, a sexual culture full of chaos. And it is very easy in that culture to end up in a situation where your easy prey for committing or receiving sexual assault or any kind of sexual experience to which you don't have the chance to receive or give strong, full consent. This is awful. 
Our college campuses are the best petri dish we could want for observing what happens to, young, to men and women when they play by the sexual revolution's rules. And the evidence in this petri dish testifies to one overriding and widely overlooked truth. Contrary to the liberation it has promised, and still promises, the sexual revolution is liberating the strong and penalizing the weak. Cynics will say that there is nothing new going on, and they are wrong. Social science is overwhelming. Strong, as strong as women are. As educated as they have become, as successful in the workforce as they obviously are, they will continue to be the most harmed in the sexual revolution. Tom, Tom Wolfe's brilliant novel that was panned, I Am Charlotte Simons. Simmons. Simons, Simons. You know, Tom Wolfe, this uh, bonfire of the vanities, right? He, he got these massive positive reviews. But when he uncovered this, he got panned. It paints in extraordinary detail, this novel, the step-by-step -step descent of Charlotte Simmons into the destructive world of the modern American college scene because she was a naive young girl on scholarship in search of social status. We like to claim that youth is the happiest time of life, but we are creating a society in which there are fewer and fewer laughing young people and more and more depressed men and women. The sexual revolution has not succeeded in living up to its own standards. Two generations of social science replete with studies, surveys, and regression analysis galore demonstrate conclusively that we are not all living happily ever after. We are not having lots of free love. We have not ascended to new heights of happiness and flourishing. So once again, the question before us is can we demonstrate and articulate an alternative that more fully satisfies the longings of the human heart. So for the last section of the lecture, I want to walk through two ways the Christian approach is better. The traditional teaching of the church about sexual, sexuality and gender really will provide everyone with the possibility of a more fulfilling life. If you forego consensual sexual relations outside of marriage, you can have a fulfilling life. That's what the Christian vision tells you. Even if that means you never have sex. Now, I know this is difficult for so many people today to imagine, much less believe, but it is true. A person will not be denied the best of human fulfillment and intimacy if they are not allowed to freedom to engage in consensual sexual relationships outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. This is the Christian vision. It's not just here are the rules. It's you will have a happier, more flourishing society. And we need to see it and own it and imagine it and dare to ask people to believe it with us. 
The Christian vision of sex and freedom is better than the story our society is telling today. And I'll point out just two ways in particular. First of all, the Christian approach to freedom and sex is better because it's more realistic. One of the most fundamental issues we're seeing is that our current cultural regime of easy sex fails to see that sex is not only often pleasurable, it is also definitely powerful, often in ways beyond your control. Almost nothing that human beings do in life is freighted with as many potential consequences as sex, emotional consequences, physical consequences, and above all, the world-altering consequence of creating an entirely new human life. Sex is powerful. It will either be powerfully constructive or powerfully destructive, but it will not be merely recreational. Attempts to tame it, to turn it into merely one form of pleasurable recreation, will never work. The Christian approach to sex, with its various sexual taboos, its physical discipline of celibacy for those who are not married, its view of marriage as lifelong and sexually monogamous, and its refusal to take sexuality and sexual behavior as a matter of only personal preference. Don't you see how all of this is really an acknowledgement of sex as dangerous? If anybody ever asked, why so many rules? Say, why so many rules about a nuclear bomb? That's why so many rules. It, all of this kind of stuff we've got built up around sex is our, it's our acknowledgement that it is so dangerous. It is an atavistic force. And the mountain of evidence we have from sociology and psychology and medicine and economics shows this to be true. When our secular age has run along with the sexual revolution so that nothing is forbidden, they have turned sex from the mysterious, powerful, terrifying, and procreative source of life into just one more pleasurable hobby like stamp collecting. And it doesn't work. Second, so I, I just, we need to own up. It's more realistic. Number two, the Christian approach to freedom and sex is better because it's better at producing consent. True consent. The sexual revolution is right to insist consent is key. The Me Too movement is right. If our Supreme Court nominee, if he denied someone the option of consent, that matters. Sex must involve consent. It must involve freedom. Because it why? Because it involves such a complete and vulnerable self-giving, it must be freely given. The gift of sex should never be conditional. It cannot depend on the partner meeting this or that condition. Sexual love cannot be coercive love. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks, the Christian vision is that sex reflects something about the unconditional love that the Creator has for us. And if sex is to reflect that unconditional love, if sex is to reflect something about the free grace of relationship with God, 
then it has to happen in freedom. The marriage bed, a place of equality, mutuality, delight, covenant love, and consent is the only context for that kind of freedom. Let me show you what I mean. And I'm going to steal shamelessly from Beth Felker Jones's amazing book, Faithful. That's the title, subtitle of Theology of Sex. I showed you the book at the end of my lectures a few weeks ago. And also, um, just like over the last several weeks, this is manuscripted out with all the appropriate academic footnoting when I'm quoting. And um, because this is in an academic lecture hall, I'm not telling you when I'm quoting. Um, that's a different genre of speech giving. Um, but we, it's on our website. So if you go to our website and you find the sermon section, that's where these lectures are, and you click on this sermon, there's a resource tab, and if you click on that, there's the manuscript. And so I'm going to steal shamelessly from her. Here goes. Marriage ought to be the context that removes the constraints that force sex without consent. Because marriage is the covenant context in which a person can be loved no matter what. There, there, there's no reason for sex in a marriage to be unfreely, unfreely given. Sex given in the hopes of winning love or keeping another person around. There is no room in a good marriage for that kind of sex. Now obviously in a sinful world, marriage is not always like that. I know I'm a pastor. I too often grieve with people over the sad reality that force and assault and rape happen in marriages. But this is a distortion, an utter perversion of what marriages ought to be. I also know that it is tempting to use sex and marriage as a bargaining chip, but this is antithetical to what marriage should be. The fact that marriage can be and is distorted, does not undo God's good creative intention for marriage. Nor does it undo the reality that there are many good, faithful marriages. Okay. Marriage is the place where consent can happen in the strongest way. In that special way that can exist in no other context. This is true because of the covenant nature of marriage. It's also true because of the public nature of marriage. Marriage is profoundly public. Part of what we do when we marry, unless we've fallen into the local craze of some private, cute, picture-worthy wedding out at your favorite destination. But when we get married like Christians, in churches, in rituals, in public, when we marry in public, we stand up before our friends and our family and our church and we say, see this man? See this woman? I'm having sex with him tonight. I'm having sex with her tonight. And this making sex public builds into marriage a whole set of safeguards. 
and accountability which cannot exist in a private individual agreement. So a marriage is the place for true free love. Truly consensual sex. I do not doubt. I have... I, I do not ever sit around thinking, is Janelle going to leave me? There is no psychological coercion going on in our relationship. She will stay with me even if she stops loving me because we made vows. And not only did we make vows, I won't be able to make a living if I leave her. If I'm unfaithful to her. I, I will lose my career. I will lose my relationships because I'm embedded in this rich, thick community. And do you know what kind of safety and security that gives me? That removes a massive amount of, wow, what if I don't do this right? What if I don't? What, what, if, I, what if I'm somehow not measuring up? Oh no, how do I keep this person? The Christian vision gives us norms that can liberate us from the enslavement that parades itself as sexual freedom today. The Christian approach to sex delivers the holy grail of consent. It delivers the goal of freedom that the hookup culture fails at so terribly. Does the Christian vision bring more satisfaction, security, freedom, and fulfillment than the vision on offer from our secular age? It does. The Christian approach to sexuality and, and gender offers a quality of love and intimacy that is more fulfilling, more free, than our secular age can offer even at its very best moment. 